0: Hello and welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm your host, Evan Brand. Hope you're doing wonderful. Hey, so I just built a brand new resources page on my website. You can check it out on your phone if you're on the go right now or on the computer, notjustpaleo.com slash resources, and you can check out everything that I use on a daily basis from the iris software that I use on my computer to block blue light. Much better Than the Flux or F.Lux software that I previously used. Whether it's the bone broth that I'm drinking. The mattress that I'm sleeping on now that I love very, very much. The Defender Pad Laptop Radiation Shield. All that stuff is at notjustpaleo.com slash resources. That's going to save me a lot of emails. So I hope you enjoy. And if you need a free call with myself, go to the website and click become a client. And I look forward to helping you out. Get to the root cause of your health symptoms real soon. Here's the show. Hello, welcome back to Not Just Paleo. I'm here with Susan today. She is a PhD, an MIT-trained scientist and engineer. She was forced to apply her critical thinking skills to debug her own family's health problems. And Susan and I, this is the second time that we're chatting because the first time, she blew my mind. We just chatted for like two hours, and I was like, holy smokes, we're both out of time, and we didn't record a show. Let me keep going. She spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and years of her life on doctors, experiments, and research. She didn't stop until her family achieved radiant health. Doctors started sending their unhealable patients to her. In January 2016, she published everything she knows for free about autism, Lyme disease, parasites, methylation, chelation therapy, and many other topics on her website, Debug Your Health. So Susan, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And how do you say your last name? I didn't want to butcher it. Um, Lou Shaw's. Lou Shaw's, okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, so you've you've blown my mind already, and I'm really looking forward to chatting more with you. Take us through some of your family and their health history. You wrote about your daughter and basically how, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this storytelling, but that by age four that she couldn't walk and had full-blown autism, and then it took another two years until she was six years old. And that's when she finally got the diagnosis of Lyme with the co-infections. And then apparently your whole family, including yourself, got exposed to the Lyme via head lice that spread to the rest of the family, which I did not even know was possible. Is that right?
1: Right. So that's, that's a good summary of what happened. Um. We all, in hindsight, myself, my husband, had symptoms for many years of many different things, but they never bothered us. You know, we went to school, we got our degrees, we worked full time, we had kids. And it wasn't until our oldest child became really sick that we finally had to say, wait a minute, what's going on with her? And that, of course, forced us also to look at what's going on with ourselves and and her younger sister as well. So our oldest child was the sickest. And she was pretty much debilitated. We didn't know it was Lyme disease. We basically figured it out, figured out how to restore her to health before we ever got the Lyme diagnosis. And then right around the time we got the Lyme diagnosis, we had a horrible head lice infestation in our house. We, I had no idea anything about head lice. I had never had it before. And the head lice spread the Lyme and all the co-infections to myself, my husband, and her little sister as well. And about so about. Six to nine months after the head lice, the other three members of our family started um, becoming unfunctional, um, Become started becoming really sick. We all presented sort of diff- slightly differently, um, but we were all uh, pretty much disabled. Now the lucky part was that my oldest child had already suffered for years and we knew how to fix her. <laughs> So it was relatively easy or fast, I would say, to fix the other three of us. We were pretty sure it was Lyme from the big beginning when I thought back and pieced it together and said, oh, it must have been that head lice because we're all getting sick at the same time and we all had head lice and we all had scabbies from head lice and stuff like that. So kind of pieced it together pretty quickly. So luckily, myself, my husband, and my youngest child um, weren't debilitated for very long.
0: Wow. Now. I may have asked you this last time we talked, I can't remember, did you ever see or even know about a tick on your youngest, or it was your oldest, did you My ever old- see
1: anything? Yes, um, she was bitten twice, once at age one, one and a half, and once again at age three, and both times we were told by the pediatrician, oh, don't worry, the tick was on less than 24 hours, and you don't see a bull's eye, so don't worry. And we never even sent the ticks to the Lyme lab. These days you can send them to a Lyme lab uh, not too far away here in California, and, and it's pretty cheap, and you can get the results back to know if the tick had Lyme or not. We didn't even do that. Um, we just believed blindly believed what our MD pediatrician told us. Now that we have, we've we had Lyme and we're Lyme literate, we know that's completely not true. No matter how long the tick is on, it can transmit Lyme and co-infections. And you don't always get a bullseye rash. In fact, most people don't get a bullseye rash. And, um, and now we're Lyme literate and we know all of that. So, so um, yeah, that, that's uh, what happened. then she was bitten again at age um, seven, I think it was. Uh, and that one, we never saw the tick, but we saw the bullseye rash. So she got Lyme again um, when she was already healed and doing perfectly fine. She was camping and um, came home with a bullseye rash. So that one was a little different because that one we caught right at the beginning. So we put her on a hard round of antibiotics, which I do not advise or approve of. But when you're dealing with Lyme, um, and you've already had it once, and a different strain of Lyme and a different strain of all these co-infections could really take down her health in a big way, um, we played it conservative, and we gave her a huge round of antibiotics after that that acute exposure.
0: So was she picking up all these tick bites in California? Were you all going up in the mountains? Yeah, you're by the Bay Area, right?
1: Yeah. Turns out the Bay Area is a Lyme endemic um, place, unfortunately, and I think generally what's happened... Is that we've we've gotten rid of a lot of our ecosystem for animals like deer and our parks and our for- forests, and so those animals are crammed into a smaller space, and those smaller spaces are the places that our family would go hiking and camping. So, um, so she got tick bites twice um, camping in San Jose, California, and then the last. Uh, older tick the acute tick bite, the one where we saw the bull'seye rash, that was in Los Altos, California. So these are all relatively nearby parks for us um, where people go hiking and camping all the time. But nowadays, at least in the Bay Area, they're saying that they've found lime in most even just public parks, so not even forests, just a small you know one acre or two acre, what they call park- pocket parks. Um, they're seeing evidence of lime in those as well. And I think I think my personal opinion is that's coming from, we have a lot of rats in the area. We also have raccoons. We have possums. Um, so all those kind of animals that are living in um, those parks, but also in like our sewer system and things like that and come out.
0: Yeah, I was looking here, just some of the CDC's info. It looks like California in general is as bad for Lyme as all the northeastern states where supposedly Lyme had really started to spread from New York, Pennsylvania, Maine, et cetera. California in the top of the chart, so that's mind-blowing. And I guess part of it is the weather, too, because it doesn't get as cold where you are as compared to here. You know, you all would never see a, a zero-degree Fahrenheit day, for example. Right.
1: Right, exactly. Ah, okay.
0: So go ahead. I was just going to say, so once you found out that she had Lyme, Talk us through this. I mean, it's a pretty basic idea, but you blew my mind with this. Your oldest, she brought home head lice from school, and then you all got head lice, and then the whole family had Lyme. That's crazy to me. How how did you figure that out? Did you know immediately, oh, it was the the lice that did it, or did it take you a while to to come to that conclusion?
1: No, it took me quite a while to come to that conclusion, but it was was weird that myself, my husband, and my youngest child all got sick pretty much at the same time. And my oldest child wasn't like, she was just normal. Um, she didn't, you know, we all, and we all had sort of classic Lyme symptoms. I mean, my youngest child, um, doesn't want to eat GI problems, um, mood problems, completely exhausted. How can a how can I, <laughs> how can a, a three-year-old be completely exhausted all of a sudden? So, um, And for me, it was the stiff neck, the swollen um, adrenals and thyroid, swollen neck, stiff neck, uh, complete exhaustion, very difficult to get out of bed, mind, uh, brain fog, mind jumbled <laughs> sort of memories, everything jumbled in my head. Um, and my husband um, had the fatigue, he had the neck, he had a bunch of other things, he had some GI stuff, but his main thing was the phimosis, which is an, an infection of the foreskin, which is caused by Lyme. So that, that was kind of interesting, an interesting twist to it. Um, but no, it took me m- many months to sort of say, well, what happened? How? And, and as soon as we all started getting sick, I knew enough about Lyme to go get tested. And then sure enough, the three of us came up positive, whereas I had tested us before and we were not testing positive.
0: And what um, test was that that was giving you the positive results? I know that the, the whole testing part is one of the biggest issues.
1: Right, right, right. So um, my the oldest child actually has a positive Lyme Western blot, IgM, all bands. So she has been reported to the CDC. She is an unequivocal case. Um. So for my husband and for the other three of us, I initially did that test, um, the Lyme Western blot, which is the CDC, the only CDC-approved test, and we came out clinically on their by their standards negative. Now that's not unusual because my older daughter did too. The first couple times we tested her, she didn't come out positive until she was healed. until she was no longer having any symptoms. Then she finally came out positive. Then her body finally started producing the antibodies to Lyme, which is what finally came out positive.
0: Ah, so, so, sorry to interrupt you. So you can be sick, but the body could be so sick that it's not able to fight the Lyme. Therefore, it will not produce antibodies. Therefore, you'll show up negative on a test.
1: Exactly, exactly, and that's what Lyme does. It takes out the white blood cells it takes out, um, they call the killer white blood cells and it takes out your normal white blood cells. It just takes out your immune system. Basically it's pretty good at it. Um, so that's Lyme's whole strategy. And that's why people usually show up negative on the test. So my husband and myself and my youngest child, we showed up on a couple of bands, but it wasn't enough for a clinical CDC diagnosis, but I knew that we were sick and I knew that, um, that showing up negative on that test was almost to be expected. Um, So then we went to the quickest, fastest, uh, cheapest way to test for Lyme is with a SIRA. And a SIRA is an energy medicine sort of machine, device, whatever you want to call it. And a SIRA is very good at diagnosing Lyme. You literally walk in, you pay your practitioner for the appointment, and you walk out with with the answer yes or no, and which co-infections and all that, and Asyra has been extremely accurate. It's not recognized by the CDC. Of course, no other testing method is re- recognized by the CDC, um, but Asyra is is pretty accurate. I've I've yet to hear of Asyra being wrong, both in the positive and the negative diagnoses. I've just never I've never seen it. A lot of Lyme people were initially diagnosed on Asyra and went on to do various blood tests. So that was my next one because that was real easy to do. And we all came up super positive on the SIRA, just like my oldest child had. Um, And then we also did uh, white blood cell count tests, lab tests, blood tests. And those came out also uh, depleted, basically. Again, you would expect that with a Lyme diagnosis. Um, And then from there, we also did... Uh, another technology called Zyto, which is another energetic technology. Zyto is not very good at diagnosing Lyme, but again, it's kind of a clue. It's kind of like, okay, can Zyto find it? And Zyto actually did find the Lyme on us. So we did that as well. And then pretty much I stopped because uh, I stopped, I stopped um, trying to get even more confirmation because I was pretty sure. I mean, oh, there there's I'm sorry, there's more there's more to it than that. There's also the Barrasco survey and this is an MD who has a paper survey and you check mark the symptoms you have on the list. It's a very long list of symptoms and you check mark all the symptoms. And on the Barasco survey, if you come up with I think a third of the symptoms or more then he as an MD considers that a clinical diagnosis of Lyme. So my husband and I took the Barrasco survey. My three-year-old obviously couldn't. Um, She wasn't wasn't old enough to read. Um, So she never took the Barrasco survey, but my husband and I came up, um, I came up at 47% of symptoms. Again, according to him, 33% is a diagnosis. My oldest child, who did clinically test positive, uh, came up with 42% of symptoms. Um,
0: How do you spell that? How do you spell his name? Can people look his survey up online?
1: Yeah, it's B-U-R-R-A-S-C-A-N-O. Maybe you say it, Barrascano. Actually, now that I'm looking at it, I would say it, Barrasco, but it's probably Baraskano. Um You can look him up online. He's MD. So we did his his survey. Um, and at that point, let me see. Yeah, at that point, we pretty much stopped um, because I had we had this we had the Barrasco sort of positive diagnosis. We had all the Assaya positive, the zyto positive. We had the white blood cell count basically decimated, the CD fifty seven as well as WBC and some others. So. I was pretty sure. I mean, without going to further testing. Now, had I had I not been a hundred percent sure, then I would have gone to Igenix, and I think you spell that I G E N I X. Yep. And I think they're or I G E N E X. Okay, Igenix, and I think they're they're here in California, and I think they're considered sort of the next. They're the most accurate Lyme blood tests. Now, I know there's a bunch of companies coming out with various Lyme blood tests and all this. But as far as I know in the Lyme community, they're probably the most um, well-respected or reliable, second only to the CDC Lyme Western Blot test, which is the antibody test, which most people come up negative on anyway. Um, So I probably would have gone to Igenics next had I had I wanted to but at that point I was pretty much 100% um, sure that we the other three of us had Lyme and getting the Lyme ironically now I can say was kind of a blessing because the Lyme forced me and my husband to deal with a lot of symptoms that we had just kind of been living with so examples of that are for me it forced me to look at parasites And it turns out I've had parasites probably my whole life and been living just fine with them and had a few symptoms, but I was able to ignore them and live just fine. Uh, But boy, do I feel better after addressing the parasite issue. And the other issue I've had to address is the dental infection issue. I had dental infections in my four wisdom teeth sockets since I had them removed about 30 years ago. And I finally had to deal with those infections and get them cleaned out. And boy, do I feel better after doing that as well. So in hindsight, Lyme sort of forced us to clean up some other issues that we might not have otherwise cleaned up, which may, be prevent, which may help prevent us from getting future problems like cancer and some of these other things, hopefully.
0: Yeah. Um, Let's break that down, the dental infections piece. As you know, as we talked last time, people have probably heard me talk about it before. I've had eight teeth removed. I've had all four wisdom and all four 12-year molars because my 12-year molars were sitting sideways. I believe I can probably find my my pano and show you, but I got the 12-year molars out too. And what you mentioned is sometimes with these surgeons, they may not remove, I can't remember what you called it. What is it that needs to be removed that sometimes does not get removed in these surgeries?
1: It's called a periodontal membrane.
0: How often are those removed? I mean, is there a number? Is it just highly unlikely that those are removed? How would you even know?
1: Yeah. Sometimes you can see it on an x-ray or a pano if it's not been removed. Um, Oftentimes it will come up, and on an x-ray or pano you can kind of see the pocket and see a Uh, if you look on my website, um, debug your health under dental, if you click under dental and scan down to my panel and I guess the resolution, if your computer resolution is good enough, you'll see like a little white line um, around the red in the red circles that I circled on my panel. And that little white line is that membrane that never got removed. A little hard to see online and on the panel, but you can see it. Um, So sometimes you can see it on an X-ray other than that. Um, there's, there's there's no way that I know of to, to confirm for sure if the membrane has been removed or not. But the problem isn't just removing the membrane. Some people can have their membrane still in there, and they may have a pocket where bone hasn't grown in, but it doesn't bother them. It may not be infected, or maybe they just have no symptoms of any kind of infection or the great. And their immune system just deals with any potential infection there just fine. Um, So the question is, is that pocket where the tooth was infected? and, um, And if so, is it bothering you? And then the hard part is these things can create symptoms that are not obviously related to the mouth. So it's not like you're going to have jaw pain and throbbing in your mouth or red gums in the back where your teeth used to be or anything like that. It's going to create symptoms that seem unrelated to the teeth. And that's where this gets really difficult to diagnose and difficult to deal with.
0: And as you told me, a lot of dentists are not trained in dental infections, right? So that's another hard part about this whole health picture here is if Maybe these membranes are still there. First, got to find somebody that can help you to identify them. And then two, got to find somebody that can identify the infections, right? Now, was that tough for you at first? Did you, did you come across someone that says, no, your, your sockets are fine? And then someone said, no, you're, you're infected? Talk me through that a little bit.
1: Yeah, so none of the dentists I've ever been to have even suggested that those could be a problem or infected. And in fact, most dentists when I was growing up, and probably still most dentists today, do not remove that membrane. I don't have a number to back that up, but my sense is that most people don't aren't aware of it. They don't teach it in dental school, and most people leave it in, unfortunately. So I never knew that these were infected or had any clue, and I think in my lifetime, I had probably been to about six or seven dentists between moving and going to school and, and all that. So... The way I ended up getting it diagnosed was that the oldest child who had been sick was pretty much healthy, but she had these weird symptoms that would flare up on the full moon, mostly skin related. And so I decided even though she's healthy, I really want to, I would really want to figure, get her as healthy as possible. I don't want her to slip back into being really sick and debilitated So I tried to figure out the parasite issue for many years, and I couldn't get it. I just couldn't get it figured out. So I flew the whole family to St. Louis um, to work with Simon Yu. He's one, pretty much the only MD right now in the country, diagnosing hidden parasitic infections, meaning parasites that won't show up on any kind of a lab test. And I already had a binder of negative lab, lab tests on her. Um, So I knew and finally got my pediatrician to admit to me that our chance of catching it was 5% if we tested a week before or right around the full moon. It was about 5% if we were testing even for the right organism. So anyway, um, I flew the whole family to St. Louis to work with him on the parasite issue for my oldest child. I was smart enough to know that if if one member of the family has parasites, probably the whole family has them. Um, especially worms. For example, worms can go very quickly from one family member to another. Um, So I wanted him to check our whole family, not just the oldest child, because I figured getting rid of parasites for her, I didn't want the rest of the family to still have them and us to reinfect her. Well, while we were at Simon Yu's office, he also diagnoses hidden dental infections. So he ended up diagnosing my hidden dental infections, which is not what I came to him to do and not what I wanted him to do. And he did it anyway. Um, So how did that
0: work? What does he, he looks at you and he checks you out and asks questions and inspects you. And I know you've talked about some of the, I think you called it like, was it acupressure points that he was hitting? And then he came up with the diagnosis for you?
1: Right. So for dental infections, the first thing he does is a thermal image of your face and thermal images. I don't know if you've ever had a thermal imager. They're not that that expensive. You can get one. Anyone can get one and you can take a thermal image of your face. And he looks for asymmetries in the thermal image. And he also looks for hot spots um, in around the mouth area, basically around the teeth um, where, where the roots of the teeth are. So he'll look for hot spots. Um, on your left side versus your right side or your upper versus your lower, especially in the teeth area. So that's not a diagnosis, but it's a clue. So he uses that as a clue. And then the next thing he does is he does AMA, which is acupuncture meridian assessment. So he has this old uh, bowl machine is what it's called. It's basically a, a machine that measures impedance and he measures that impedance or the resistance, along these acupuncture meridians. And he looks for meridians that are what he calls out of balance. So this is actually a very difficult skill because you have to hit right on those meridian points. So he'll do points on your hands and points on your feet. He'll poke them with his machine and look for imbalances. Now, finding the right point is not easy. It takes a lot of practice and a lot of skill. So he's been doing this for 30 years and he can find points on anybody almost immediately. Um, but for those of us like me who know how to measure impedance just fine, um, still finding the points is difficult. And I have charts of the points and I can find points, but it's it's difficult for me. Like I, I don't do this every day. I can do it. Um, I spend a lot of time learning how to do it. But it's still difficult for me to find points. He's very good at it because he does it all day, every day, for the last 30 years, pretty much. Um, So anyway, he looks for acupuncture meridians that are out of balance. And then his machine has a tray, and he can put various things on the tray to try to bring it back into balance. So he actually uses antibiotics just as a testing tool to test if they will bring that meridian back into balance. And if they do, he knows there's an infection along that meridian. And the meridians, the acupuncture meridians, it turns out uh, correlate to various teeth. So um, it's called the tooth organ chart. There's a link on my website, but if you just Google tooth organ chart, you can get a sense of which teeth correspond to which organ and, uh, and system in your body basically. So another thing he looks at, in addition to all of that, so the thermal image and the AMA acupuncture measurements, is he also looks at the tooth organ chart and looks for your symptoms. He looks, do your symptoms align with some of the things related to the tooth socket that he's suspecting might be infected? So let's see, a good example of this is my wisdom teeth. And one of the things on the wisdom tooth meridian is the inner ear. And I have had ringing in my ears since I had my wisdom teeth pulled out. In hindsight, I can say that um, at the time, I didn't really realize that my ears started ringing after I got my teeth out. I just didn't pay attention to it. Um, but that's, for example, ringing in your ears is one that might one symptom or one clue that might indicate or corroborate the theory that your wisdom tooth socket might be infected. Also, along just looking along the wisdom tooth. Um, example, inner ear, shoulder, elbow, hand, foot, toes, sacroiliac, a bunch of spinal segments, a bunch of vertebrae segments, heart, ilium, pituitary, anterior lobe. So those are some examples. Also energy metabolism. Uh, Those are some examples of things along that meridian. Uh, I can say that in hindsight, um, I had ringing in my ears. I had a lot of chiropractic issues. And since I got my wisdom teeth cavitations, uh, taken care of, I no longer go to the chiropractor nearly as much as I used to. I do still sometimes go, but it's more like I've been shoveling all day on the weekend or something. And I hurt myself more of that kind of thing rather than a chronic kind of thing. Um, the ringing in my ears, I also had some weird symptoms that I wouldn't even say were on here. Like I had um, this draining feeling down the back of my throat. It's hard to really explain cause I had it all my life, but now that it's gone, I can say, wow, that's so cool. It's gone. I don't feel like I'm constantly draining something behind my throat. Uh, the other thing was I had really a lot of tension, huge tension and muscle knots in my neck and my upper shoulders. And that literally just relaxed right out as soon as I got the cavitations taken care of. So these are again, clues. So the things he uses, in summary, after all that, the things he uses to diagnose these are really sort of clues. They're not 100% definitive. And what happens is that when the oral surgeon goes in and does the surgery, usually they'll take a sample and send it off to Dental DNA or one of those companies for, um, I don't know, call it autopsy or biopsy to see what organisms were in there. And then, you know, in hindsight, okay, I was definitely infected because here's a list of the bacteria that they found in there.
0: Ah, I see it. I see this, this test here, dental DNA testing. Is that right?
1: That's right. So uh, most of the people, I, oral surgeons I know, use them, and they'll take a sample from the cavitation. Usually... Sometimes when they open up the cavitation, it'll be like a yellow pus or a green pus or something like that, and they'll just take a sample of that and they'll send it off to dental DNA. Insurance doesn't cover dental DNA as far as I know, um, but but it is an option. Insurance will usually cover the oral surgeon, though.
0: That's incredible. So basically, what would happen if I wanted to go get checked out? First, I would go to that guy, which St. Louis is not far, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go just because I want to know because I'm curious and then he would send you or I would find a dentist that knows about this and then they would basically cut open your gum and then they would take the sample out of the gum. Is that right?
1: Right. So they would open up the site, the site where your tooth used to be or where the infection is. They would cut it open and usually it's an oral surgeon, not a dentist who's doing this. Okay. But there are some dentists who do it, but usually it's an oral surgeon who's doing this. They would open it up and they would clean it out. So that's where you really want to have an oral surgeon who uses ozone because you can't see these bacteria. He can't see them when he's in there. Um, so you really want someone who's going to use ozone or something that's really going to sort of kill everything because that's going to give you your best chance of success. You want them to remove um, the periodontal membrane if it's, still, if you know, whatever's still there left of it or whatever's still there of it and clean the area out. Um, and then they stitch you back up. Usually, I have a cavitation surgery checklist on my website. So maybe take that with you to print out and make sure you get all those things. Um, usually, they'll do an injection of ozone after the surgery. I recommend post-op injections of ozone as well, just to make sure you don't get get another infection festering in there. And infections, This unfortunately, after cavitation surgery, you can still end up with cavitation. So this is to prevent... Um, the unsuccessful cavitation surgery. So you want someone who uses ozone, who potentially does post-op ozone injections. And sometimes they'll also inject inject trameal or some kind of um, PRF, uh, platelet-rich fibrin, to help the area heal. They spin that out of your blood. I think that's worth it as well. So um, that's a short answer to how to get cavitation surgery.
0: Wow. Okay. So let me get this straight. So you would go... You would want to figure out if you could get diagnosed with the issue first. You would say maybe you could skip that step and go straight to an oral surgeon that could just test you, but to save yourself the surgery, you could go try to figure out if you have that for sure, if it's highly probable that you have it, and then go get checked out. They'll cut it open, they'll give you ozone, and then... Will that kill everything then? I mean, when they open it up and they're cleaning or scooping out or testing and then, they, and then they stitch you back up, could you be potentially cured at that point just by the investigative and cleaning part? The infections could be gone if they did a good job?
1: Yeah, if they did a good job. Now that's a question. Usually it's hard. I think personally, my opinion is it's hard for them to get 100% of the bacteria out that's why you still wanna do post op ozone injections. That's my opinion. And um, how do they do that? Don't, don't wanna go back. You don't wanna do this twice. I've done it twice, and let me just say, you don't wanna do it once and you really don't want to do it twice.
0: <laughs> so it's not fun. I'm acting like it's just, oh yeah, go get your gums cut open and get checked out. So so is it as it's intense big- or more intense than say removing wisdom and or twelve year molars?
1: Yeah, I'd say it's on that order of magnitude. Um, it's a little better, but you will end up with similar, you know, bluish cheeks, you know, and things like that, depending how big and how deep your cavitations are. It can be on that order of magnitude, I would say.
0: So um, would this require anesthesia? Or are you knocked out for this?
1: Yeah, you can, you can, uh, the oral surgeons I've worked with, they always give you a choice. So you can do general or you can do local so you can choose usually what would you do i'm hardcore um, i have a high tolerance for pain so i do local
0: okay so can you still feel something there you're just awake to watch it all
1: no you can you can feel um you know you're numb right but you can still feel the scraping and the um and the drilling if they drill on the drill in on the lo- lowers and you can hear the cutting you know and you can hear what he's saying so um, I actually had the interesting experience on my second time of my cavitation surgery where I still had this weird chiropractic issue on my left side where it felt like my left side was always crunched together. And I would go to the chiropractor and I would be good for like a day or two. I would go to the osteopath and I would be good for a day or two. And then it would all come back. It was always scrunchy on the left side. And I had the second cavitation surgery done, on the, which is on the left side. And immediately in the operating chair, I felt the whole left side just release. It was so cool. And I just thought, all right, it really was the cavitation that was causing this left side scrunching that I still had.
0: And that Um, was your body. You were saying your whole body was scrunched up like you were crooked.
1: It's like my left side. Imagine doing like a side crunch, like an ab crunch, a side crunch on your left side, you know, to get those obliques and stuff in there. Um, That's what I felt like all the time. Like, that's just how it felt. It felt like I was constantly crunched there in my neck, in my back, in my everything. Um, So I want to back up just one second to the diagnosis part. So as far as I know, oral surgeons don't really generally diagnose these things. Um, There are some oral surgeons that are, so there's a lot of oral surgeons that don't even do this surgery. They don't believe in it. They don't, they don't think it exists. They don't think these infections bother people. They don't think the infections exist, whatever their problem is. I don't know, but there's a lot of oral surgeons who don't even, they're not trained. They don't understand it. So they don't do it. Um, the ones who do do it, not all of them will diagnose. So some of them, you will need potentially a referral from Dr. You, for example. Um, but Dr. Yu is having trainings now every year. As he's aged, he's finally realized he had better train some people. Oh, man. And and he's now training uh, once a year for dentists and oral surgeons. And he, he does have some dentists and oral surgeons now who have old machines in their office. So they'll measure you with this machine during surgery to see if they've gotten all the infection or to see if they think they've gotten all the infection. Now, of course, that machine you know, can it detect one or two bacteria that are still in there? I think probably not because he cleared me on the vol machine and I was still infected my first time. So, um, it's not a hundred percent, but it is a possibility. So this Simon, you in an MD in St. Louis is doing it. The other way is that I published on my website under dental, a bunch of videos that show how I do it at home. And I do this, um, at home just to test, you know, my husband's had dental infections. I've had them. We want to check in. We want to see, okay, it may not be infected today, but maybe a year or two from now, it might be infected. Um, it might become infected. We don't, you know, we just don't know. These things also can take a while to develop. So we wanted to monitor it. I also had a lot of people asking me, well, can't you do it? And so I started doing it with AMA, just like Dr. U does. But like I said, the points are hard to find and the thing is kind of a pain so I am I do it with muscle testing now and that I found that that's kind of the cheapest, easiest way to do it. Um, you can do it at home. You can do it anytime. If you still want the MD diagnosis, you can still go to Simon U. but at least you have another clue to think that that might be an issue for you.
0: How many people have you talked with? Because I know people come to you and they want answers because of the work that you've done with your own family. How many people have come to you and they've ended up finding out they had dental infections going on?
1: Um, this is a difficult question. I know. Because, I, well, first of all, let me explain. I'm not a practitioner, and I don't want to be. So I try to scare these people off. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> sure. I, I'm good at it. Um, so I don't want, because otherwise what would happen would be that I would be a pr- become a practitioner and testing these people all the time and da da da. So, I did test, um, for example, in the videos on my website, you'll see that I'm saying, I, here's a person who literally walked in my house a minute ago and they're suspicious of dental infections, and this is how we're going to test them. So, it's an educational video to show how I do it or how I would do it. But I don't let those people into my house all weekend long because otherwise I'd have a line outside the front door, right? Yeah. So I just did that as an educational because I couldn't take all the cases that wanted my help. Like I just couldn't. I would have had to quit my job and and do this for free or then I'd have to become a practitioner to make some money to feed my family and I didn't want to go in that direction. So with all of that said, um, how many people have I tested? Um, probably 30 I'm thinking
0: Well I guess I guess I guess that's a bad question. I apologize. Maybe the better question is out of the people that have come to you, which that's obviously going to be a biased patient population too, because they think that they have something going wrong, but out of the many people that have suspected they got something going on and you've been and you've checked them out, how many of the people who had a hot lead, I guess would be the way to say it, ended up actually having something like I mean with parasites, for example, I've tested over a thousand people now and the average is one in three with parasites. So I'm just curious if you've been able to come up with any type of guess or estimate on dental infections in comparison to say one in three like parasites.
1: Yeah. I don't think my sample size is as large as yours. Like I said, I'd say it's probably only 30 people. Yeah. Um, But of the people that I've tested, they've always had dental infections and I've, and I've also tested people Um, some of those people were, oh, I think it's tooth number one, but then I, my opinion after testing them is that I don't, I think it is tooth number one usually, but I, I think it's tooth 17 that's more of their problem. So a lot of times people will come in, oh, I think it's this tooth. And then I'll, I'll, I will sometimes, most of the time verify that tooth. But usually I, oftentimes I would say I, I find a tooth that I think is even more of a problem. Um, the other thing is I've had a lot of people come to me with just kind of unexplained or unsolvable symptoms. And a lot of times on those people, I will find a tooth or two, ah, um, like okay. arthritis is a really good example. Um, you know,
0: arthritis, that, you said,
1: yeah, arthritis is a really good example because, um, it's not often looked for dental problem dental problems aren't often looked for in arthritis and you know for some reason dental infections this chronic infection thing is really good at causing arthritis in some people so that's a good example of i've had a few people come to me for various arthritis various variations on arthritis and i've almost always been able to find a tooth or two on those people
0: okay and forgive me if you've said this already but in terms of testing for the infections, you said there's no good test for dental infections. Is that right?
1: Right. The only, well, there's dental DNA.
0: Okay. That Yeah. Okay. That's right. At, I meant like something that wasn't as invasive, like a blood or urine or something like that. Um, Which I guess blood is invasive, but less invasive right. than getting your gums cut open.
1: Okay. Less invasive than that. There are no definitive tests but there are clues, right? So one clue to a chronic infection in general is white blood cell count, right? And immune function. So all the um, the subclasses, IgG subclasses and things like that, you can, you can look at sort of general immune panels and see how well is the immune system. Does the immune system seem like it's being taxed? And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a tooth, um, but it's a but it's a clue, right? It, it, it's a clue. Um, the other one that's actually pretty decent is to go get that Lyme Western blot test that we were talking about, which is a blood test. And band 41 on that test is a good indicator of a spirochite infection. Now, it doesn't mean that that infection is in your tooth, but spirochete infections usually are in places without much blood flow. So, a, so a good example of that would be a cavitation, which is the area where your tooth used to be, which doesn't get any blood flow because they left that membrane in. So, spirochete infections are really good at hiding in places like joints, um, cartilage, um, tooth cavitations. So, again, band 41 being positive doesn't 100% indicate the tooth, but it's a it's a clue that it might be a tooth infection.
0: Ah, that's amazing. Okay, I need to look back. I'll look back at my wife's just for curiosity because when we thought she had Lyme, she just ended up showing a couple of different infections like the mycoplasma pneumonia. I need to look at her band. So 41, let's see. Yeah, so she did have 41.
1: Right. So that may be a tooth or it may be Lyme and other other co-infections. I'm not saying at 100% it's a tooth, but I'm saying it's an indicator.
0: Ah. And this would have been after her wisdom teeth surgery when she got this blood panel and she had that arthritic symptoms, now they're gone, mm. but that's, that's mind-blowing.
1: Right. I think you mentioned, we never finished our conversation on that, but I think you mentioned you gave her the, the herbs, the herbal yes. protocol. I think that's great, um, but I, I also think that that helps your boost, like Cemento or Cat's Claw, right? It's really great at boosting your immune system, white blood cells, and things like that, um, but doesn't necessarily get rid of the chronic infection um completely the hope with the herbal protocols which i actually kind of believe is that they can boost your immune system enough and sometimes push the infection down enough that your m- immune system can gain the upper hand and then you can live life fully maybe your immune system can completely eradicate the infection although i don't believe that personally but you know it's always a hope um but still in that case i would say even if her symptoms went away with the, with the herbs um you know, I would still tend to look at the tooth myself. Again, if you have Lyme, you want to be sure uh, to get rid of all your other chronic infections anyway, so your body can work on the Lyme.
0: So the Lyme thing was huge. The dental infections were huge. What would be some of the first steps if you had someone listening, and they've had Undiagnosed issues for sure get tested. It sounds like is a big one. You know the parasites are huge. That's something I test for, and I test my clients and people who listen to the show all the time. Um, but what other what other steps would you say? You know, look for gut infections. Look for the dental infections. If you thought something like Lyme was present, maybe get tested for Lyme. Is there any other big needle movers that we didn't mention that we should mention today?
1: I can speak from the experience of our family. Um, the big things for us were the diet, the lifestyle. I mean, that was kind of number one, heal, heal, leaky gut, right? So that included big steps of that were diet, lifestyle, um, hernia, stomach acid. We had to address all of those for that. But the big, the number one, most bang for our buck was probably in the, in the diet lifestyle area just to get the immune system and the body working again.
0: That's great.
1: Had miracles and dental. I already talked to you about that a little bit. We had miracles and parasites um, once we finally got some of the hidden parasites diagnosed and treated. We had miracle improvements there. Um, We also had miracle improvements with phrenectomy, which maybe sounds funny, um, but it's this flap of skin underneath your tongue. And it turns out that even if you don't speak with a slur, and even if you don't have an obvious tongue tie and you breastfed you're you breastfed as a child just fine, you can still benefit from phrenectomy. And I don't think we really fully understand this. I only did a phrenectomy because I didn't want my youngest daughter um, to be alone. She had a speech slur a- and um, she had um, a clearly tight frenum, And I didn't want her to go through surgery alone. So I did it with her, <laughs> which is not <laughs> necessary. Oh my
0: gosh. So you got now... And forgive me because I'm naive to this. You got you got that cut? Is that what they do?
1: Right. So it's the flap oh. of under your tongue. And if you don't have one, some people don't really have a frenum to cut. And that's great. That's awesome. But some of us have sort of what I would call a slight tongue tie. Like we're, I'm not tongue tied enough that I had a speech slur. But I was... If you look at the pictures on my website, or if you if you look at me, you can see that I do have a little bit of a tight frenum, frenulum. So um, I only did it because my younger daughter did it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, but boy, did that help! I mean, my whole I used to be kind of hunchbacky in my upper back. I was kind of always hunchy, and I just thought that's from years of working in the lab and studying. Uh, but after my frenectomy, I just that straightened right up, and it's really weird, but. After the phrenectomy, I feel like I can detox better. Um, I feel like I can um, make, I can live a wider range of lifestyles, meaning I can eat, I can drink a half a glass of wine without my body kind of going into shock or something. Um, I I just feel like I I detox better with the phrenectomy.
0: How do you make sense of that?
1: I don't. I don't. (laughs) And there's there's pretty much no, there's one study. I think it's on Ben Lynch's site. He he talks a little bit about tongue tie and methylation. So he talks about the link between your body's ability to methylate and your tongue tie. I know we have some oral myofacial therapists here who pretty much look at your frenulum under your tongue and say, "Okay, you have an MTHFR mutation. I don't even need for you to test for it," right? So there is some kind of tongue t- uh, a correlation between the frenulum and the and the MTHFR that we don't really understand fully yet. And so it could be that my great improvements by frenectomy are really methylation improvements. I'm not really sure about that because I did have the big chiropractic or osteopathic improvement. We also have now a couple of osteopaths who have written blog posts about how much they've improved when they've had their frenectomies, And... Um, those are just kind of anecdotal stories. Um, but it's just a topic that I, I, since you're asking this question, I thought I would mention because we did have huge improvements with it, and it's not really commonly known.
0: That's a trip to me. It seriously is. That is mind-blowing. And did you write about that? I believe you did on your website as
1: well. Yeah, there's a phrenectomy tab um, on my website. The other thing I, I just want to mention um after parasite medications, Simon Yu recommends gallbladder liver flushes, and I don't know if you've ever done one or if your listeners do them, uh, but they are really helpful, and I never would have done them had had he not told me to, but he says even healthy people should be doing this four times a year. And I do it still religiously whether I'm taking parasite medications or not. I do it four times a year and it really does help. Well, what
0: what is that though? Because if you ask one person and another, you're going to get two different, completely completely different ideas of what a liver or gallbladder flush is. Is this like the olive oil thing? Because I've heard some say you're just pooping out like olive oil blobs. Is that the same thing or is that something different?
1: Right, so it's pretty much the same thing. Simon Yu, again, the MD in St. Louis, he has on his website his recommended gallbladder liver flush. I have a link, if you click on gallbladder on my website, Debug Your Health, I have also a link to his um, gallbladder liver flush document, but I have some things on top of that that I found work even better than what he recommends. So he recommends um, several bile thinning supplements, sort of, Before you start the flush, he recommends eating very light meals, and then you take Epsom salt and olive oil. So it's sort of the olive oil thing, if you will. Um, I've found a couple of variations on that that I think work a little better. I do it fasting because I think it works a lot better fasting. I get better results. I get more out. Um, As for what you poop out being um, olive oil blobs, um, I don't think so. Um, I'm actually have a post coming up soon with pictures of the bile sludge that we have excreted as well as some gallstones. Unfortunately, I don't have as many good gallstone pictures, but my husband has put out some very good sized gallstones. Um, gallstones tend to be white or cre- or cream in color, kind of like a liver fluke color and the uh, bile sludge or the greenies tend to be green. They are bright green in color. Um, So we've gotten really good results after that flush. Now, if you want to take the stance that you're just pooping out olive oil and you're not really cleaning out your bile, um, that's fine. That doesn't bother me. But all I can still say is that I feel really good after doing them. And that's after fasting for three days and then drinking a cup of olive oil. And I'm saying, I feel really good and I'm always glad I did it. And I always want to do it again in a couple months when I feel like I need it again.
0: Sure. And, and I have no clue. I've personally n- never done it. I don't have any experience with it. I've just heard some say, yes, they're amazing. And then you hear other people say, nope, it's, it's not even real. It doesn't do anything. So it's hard to get. It's hard to get truth about it because you hear so many, you hear things on both sides of the spectrum with almost anything in, you know, complementary health, but especially especially that one.
1: Right. I, I've tried it. Um, the first time I did it, I think, I didn't really think it was that useful. I don't think the second time I thought it was that useful. Um, and he, it, Dr. Yu says, you're supposed to see these greenies. And if you don't see greenies, you need to do it again. And I was kind of like, well, darn him you know, I don't see any greenies. (laughs) So I did it until I was like, darn him, I'm gonna get I'm gonna see greenies. And so finally, I, I, I saw greenies, like, finally, I did it. Um, The basically the trick for me was fasting, I'm always hungry, and I like to eat. And I work out and I'm pretty fit. Um, So for me, eating light meals is really hard. Um, so I found that for me, fasting really worked. And once I started fasting and also I added extra, um, extra stone breaker and, and, uh, and bile thinners, uh, extra, uh, um, on top of what he recommends, once I did that and I fasted, then I finally started getting the greenies out and then I started finally feeling better
0: from wow. them. Wow. Now, so what'd you notice? Energy better? Like what type of symptoms changed? It's
1: hard to explain. It's, it's it's energy. It's like, wow, I feel cleansed. It's it's energy. And it's also this feeling like I lost a pound in my liver area. And I don't know how else to explain it other than that. Imagine you have a pound uh, baseball or something in your liver, liver area and all of a sudden you flush that out. It just feels lighter.
0: That makes sense. I understand that.
1: Explain. My husband um, did flush out gallstones. So that was obviously really obvious. He had severe pain in his liver gallbladder area. We did liver massage, um, a bunch of other things. And finally, I convinced him, okay, you really need to do a good flush. And so he was against it, of course, but he finally did it. And he got out the stones, we saw them. um, And of course, the pain was immediately gone. Wow. So for him, it was a big deal.
0: Now, did you pull out the stones? Did you try to Hit them with the spoon or something and see. I mean, is it just solid, solid rock basically consistency?
1: Um, the stones, yeah, they're cal- they're they're calcified basically. So it's like I don't know if you've ever looked at a calcium deposit. They're not super hard. It's not like granite. It's more like a I don't know a calcium deposit. Yeah. Um, like a like something slightly crumbly, right? If if you if If you pinch it between your fingers, it sort of pinches and sort of crumbles a little bit. Um, That's kind of the consistency. Whereas the bile sludge, the greenies, as they call them, those are, you know, almost like, I don't know, they're almost like jello or play-doh kind of consistency and bright green. And sometimes what happens um, is that the greenies, the small greenies, they can start to calcify as well on the outside and become stones.
0: That's a trip.
1: And we've seen that as well, like in our excretions over the years with this, with doing this, that, you know, sometimes we'll have some that we can see um, actually has started to calcify. Wow. Uh, yeah, i picked, I've actually, I don't generally sort through my stool, but <laughs> but in this case of these greenies, I really wanted to kind of, and gallstones, I really wanted to kind of feel them and see what they look like. So I got out my trusty plastic spoon and my paper plate and I fished some of them out and sort of cracked them open and stuff like that. Um, Not something I normally do, but I have a post coming out in a couple months here on with pictures of, of all that, of the milestones. That's a
0: Uh, trip. Stuff like that. Wow. Well, we got to wrap this thing up. I'm sure we could chat for hours. People can go check out your website. I mean, there's, there's a wealth of info here because the thing that, that I really enjoy about your story and everything that you've done is you 've been in the trenches yourself, which is always the funnest thing to read it 's not theory it 's proof of everything that you 've gone through all the trials and tribulations so we'll send people back there to debug your health and like you mentioned you're not a practitioner you're just sh- sharing this story so
1: right well thanks for having me having me on your show it's been fun and I hope uh, some of your listeners have have at least been exposed to some other ideas of what might be causing some of their um, fatigue and symptoms.
0: I appreciate it. Is there anywhere else that people can keep up with you? Do you post on any other place besides your website, social media, anything like that, where you post articles, or is it mainly the website?
1: Mostly my website. I do. There is a Debug Your Health Facebook, but it's not. It's not super active. Again, this is not my um, not my full time job, and I'm not trying to get um, I don't know tons of subscribers or anything like that. Um, in fact, I'm a little crotchety and try to scare people away and just say, everything I know is on my website. So go read it. And if you, and I, but I do answer questions. So if people see something and they're confused or it's not clear, I do actually answer those questions actively, both on YouTube for the videos and on my website. Um, usually now it's gotten to the point where the information is pretty good and usually the questions coming in are really good ones. So Cool.
0: Awesome. Well, Susan, thanks so much for your time, and we'll keep in touch.
1: Yep. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Take care. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Susan. As I mentioned in the beginning of the show, if you go to notjustpaleo.com slash resources, you can check out the bone broth I'm drinking, the Defender Pad laptop shield I'm using, the Iris software that I'm using that costs $2 that blocks blue light during the daytime as well on my computer, to the mattress that I'm now using and have settled on, to the coconut oil that I use, to the specific oral care products, everything. I get hundreds if not thousands of emails per, per year about, hey, I heard you mention this. What do you use? Hey, what do you use for this? How do you send emails to your clients? How do you build your website? All of that business tool stuff, that's there too, not just paleo.com resources. And as always, I block out a few hours a month for 15 minute consultations at no charge to discuss your health symptoms, figure out if we're a good fit for each other. I guarantee you've probably been listening to this show for a while and for some reason you've not pulled the trigger. I always love asking that to my new clients, what made you finally pull the trigger? And it's like, you know what? I've had to hit rock bottom or I had to realize I needed help or something. I love hearing what triggered people to reach out and get help. That is my main concern in life, making sure you're as healthy as humanly possible so that you can do the things that you want to do with the people you love. Why be healthy if you're just going to sit in a box? Get out, explore the world, enjoy yourself. That is my goal and my passion. You can get that 15-minute free call with myself. Or, look, if you want to skip the uh, icebreaker phase and just go right into the one-hour call with me, you can schedule that as well, not just paleo.com. All right, take care. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. She acts like it's all good yeah, like everything's cool Kiss a girl tonight and everything
1: leaves her She doesn't have a clue that he's never been close Why I'm in the tie, I gotta mean watch out girl Don't wanna see her by her eyes out girl Cause I've been watching, you've been hurting Let me be the one that loves you better